Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. which is of course Italian for Achtung Achtung those of you listening to my reading of George Chatterton's The Wings of Pegasus at the moment will know that the battered and half drowned glider pilot regiment have landed in Sicily or in George Chatterton's case off the coast of Sicily um ah, James welcome how are you doing that airborne <laughs> operation let's be honest now because you've written about it um uh, in considerable detail, is a complete. Yeah. And, a total, I, and I've written about George Chatterton as well. It's in, a total in, mess, it? isn't it? It's a total yeah, it's mess. A that operation, absolute. It, it, it's just so ridiculous, and, and it becomes even more. I mean, it's ridiculous when you think you think out of 147 gliders, four landed where they were supposed to. Yes, a hundred and forty-seven, just four. I mean, that is breathtakingly bad. It's and, not. It's it's not brilliant. Um, and what's really interesting, and so, so so all those glider troops that are in the gliders are all sort of scattered to the four winds. I mean, what is amazing is 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 that you know they do take the Ponte Grande, which is a kind of number one numero uno object uh, objective, um, with basically one glider's worth of men, which is basically what it boils down to. They capture the bridge and they manage to hold on to it with a kind of the help of some stragglers and keep going until about three o'clock the afternoon. They finally run out of ammo. They're surrendered, but literally three minutes later, um, 17 Brigade turn up, having tramped all the way from from Avila, you know, the, the Casabile, um, and um, uh, and and the day is saved, and you know, on they go on into. 144 into... gliders are launched. No, 147. Oh, really? Okay, yeah, we'll figure. Well, okay, that's interesting because Richie Richie gives the figure 100. He says 144. I promise you, I've got every single one. Oh, no, no, I don't. I don't <laughs> doubt it. Right. So, so 147, 69 go in the sea. Yep. T- um, ten completely unaccounted for. Yep. Fifty-four come down somewhere in Sicily. Yeah. <laughs> and four on their designated LZs. Yes, uh, the, the, and there's some some other missing ones. There's some that end up in North Africa. There's there's one that ends up on the Marif line, um, down in southern Tunisia. Um, there's one that lands on Malta. It's very funny. They land at Lucca, uh, which is the main kind of uh, the main airfield there. And uh, they, they they jump, you know, they crash land onto it, onto Malta. All the men jump out with their kind of sort of guns, kind of, yeah. you know, ready to go. And suddenly a jeep runs past and goes, what the bloody hell are you doing here? Get off my landing strip. <laughs> and they go, what do you mean? What are you doing here? And they realise that they've landed on Malta. It's all a bit embarrassing. Oh, jeepers. But, yeah, so I mean, it's, it's an is- absolute shower. But the Air Landing Brigade, um, uh, it's quite interesting because at first there's this idea that lots and lots of people drown. But actually, they lose, uh, uh, they've 100, they, they, land, they, they leave Tunisia with 148 officers, 1,927 other ranks, right? Um, yep. 61 men are killed in action, 133 wounded, right? So not sure how many of those are, la- uh, 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 um, uh, uh, you know, on landing. They establish that 252 men are drowned. I mean, it's... It's it, as Dave Barkle's going, of course, the mastermind genius behind it all, General Hopkinson, he's in the drink with everyone else. So um, it's unbelievable. It is, it, and it, his, his hubris is just is just I, I, I can think of sort of few episodes of greater hubris on a part of a British commander than, than this one in the, in the entire Second World War. And he sort of gets away with it. I mean, partly because he dies. But but but, you know, it is. It is absolutely incredible how totally ill-prepared, totally unready they are. And I think the thing about, about Hopkinson is he's a guy who, who gets totally obsessed with whatever it is he's doing. So yeah, he has this kind of special him, yeah. he has this sort of special unit in France in 1940. I can't remember quite what it is. It's some sort of intelligence gathering reconnaissance it's kind of thing. It's Phantom, isn't it? Yeah, isn't Phantom it? Force, that's it, yeah. yeah. And, and, um, and he gets completely obsessed with that. And then the next, and basically, he's got to be top dog. He's got to be leading. And when he does get into something, that all all kind of rational judgment, all ability to kind of see the bigger picture, just completely goes out in the out the window in his single minded pursuit of this one cause that he has now attached himself to. And 
it is amazing that he got as far as he did. And he does so because he's obviously very charming and very persuasive. Uh, and because he's he's oh, he's sort of banging against an open door of a British high command that is desperate for kind of sort of exciting new means of protracting warfare. And, uh, and this is one of them. But but but, but, the... but, his, but his, his advice for Husky and, and the use of the gliders as opposed to paratroopers, frankly, as opposed to landing special forces in landing craft, which would have been... Or as opposed to just not bothering. Or just I not mean... bothering. <laughs> well, no, I mean, if you look at it, I mean, think about think about what the SRS do. So it's a special raiding squadron, which is was the SAS, becomes the SAS again afterwards. Led by Paddy Main, 285 men, I think it is. One killed, two wounded in four days of battle. And they... they achieve everything they're supposed to do with bells on the interesting thing is they are the you know they are the special air service they are trained paratroopers and yet they land by sea in landing craft and they can do exactly what they want what's interesting about the ponte grande is it is right next to the sea which sort of you know surrounded by lots of fields with stone walls lots of sort of you know little hills and tussocks and stuff and incredibly difficult places in which to land a, a, a glider which sort of begs a question if it's so important why don't you just earmark six landing craft out of your total for that operation and sending well, commandos or well, send because in Hopkinson or- Hopkinson has convinced you it can be done and um, and and that's I mean that what I mean what is interesting is because the first parachute brigade's operations in North Africa are such a disaster are so badly organized so badly put together people are dropped they've dropped 50 miles behind enemy lines there's no plan to hook up with first army actually that the first army doesn't really know what the parachute brigade are up to there the force is split in two that one of the airfields that they're going to land on it turns out there's no germans there so nothing for them to destroy but they go anyway um it's like as 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 cock up full as you could possibly um ask for so maybe maybe what happens is hopkins is go well you know look at that that parachute operation we just did because he's obviously got gliders on his mind that parachute so we can't use paratroopers it's it can't be even though the cock-ups are all his headquarters delivering them, you know. I mean, it, this is what's what's really interesting about it. And then, of course, after Husky, Browning writes a report going, "Well, you know, the the problem is, is no one at the highest level really understands how airborne forces work. So what you need is someone at the top who understands how airborne forces really work, i.e., me. <laughs> Even though it's pretty evident that no one knows how it works, and they can't make it work because then, because because you know, there's meant to be landings at Augusta, isn't there? That the, um, mm. the, the second parachute brigade is supposed to land there, but but Eighth right. Army, Eighth Army, uh, uh, um, overrun that. And qu- what's quite interesting is that they at least have the sense to see there's no, we don't need to do that. Then that there is some reflect, you know, reflection uh, and reaction and reflective thinking going on as as Husky unfolds, but not to the point where they go, we don't. This is premise solely bridge landing i mean how how overbaked that that is and then of course they take the same course don't they so that they take the same route in over the fleet and get shot at yeah and all i mean you know it's just like let's repeat our let's repeat the mistakes of of several nights ago it's it's about it's quite extraordinary really but anyway but you know that that browning has the nerve to go well what you need is someone who really knows how to well make no because browning's already done that he's already said that beforehand he said that in response to the cock up in tunisia so in, yeah, yeah i think it's in may 1943 that he becomes the overall head he's a he's yeah, a yeah. special airborne advisor yeah, to yeah. eisenhower which is why hopkinson then takes over first airborne yeah. but, which but, is but, why but, he's in the driving seat but this is but, but post all the post-match analysis at husky is you know you really need you really need yeah. uh, the, the, an expert at all levels, and the, and you think because I because I often think you know when you when it, a, a year later when you when when Urquhart joins First Airborne Division, they go oh, he's not he's not he's new to airborne, he doesn't really understand anything. Well, none of you none of you do. You're <laughs> yeah. all making up as you go along, and as an accusation, that seems that seems uh, seems to me a little bit um, a tiny bit of projection because after all, one of the things about these guys also. And I think it's re- really interesting because they spend most of their time waiting for to do something r- like the fire brigade, rather than yeah, you know, they're not like they're not they're nowhere near as experienced as 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 the as a, a you know a battalion in the DLI well, or a but, 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 battalion. No, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That, I mean that 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 is absolutely true. But with but but with the the glider troops, it's even it's even oh, worse. No. Even because, worse because yeah. the glider pilots who are all you know, first of all. They haven't flown for three months in a glider yeah, no. by the time they actually assemble and get into a glider for the first time again in North Africa. Yeah. And by the time it comes to 
Operation Husky, they have flown four hours worth of training by day and one and a half by night. Yeah, yeah. and it's an Amer- and it's the and way it's it. American glider, not the glider they've trained on. And m- most of them have done no night training at all because the RAF will only let them do night well, they've, training. They've, they've got on average to- an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. But but the R on all but not under the circumstances they're going to land in Sicily because the RAF no. will only let them do flare path night landings because That's it's too right. dangerous. Yes, it's, just, it's too dangerous it's so to land. Too dangerous to land by night without without flare paths. Yeah. So they're 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 doing a thing even if they've trained for it they can't do it. Yeah. It's amazing. And a lot of the Wacos arrive from America and they're all in crates and it takes them ages to get them assembled. And then they assemble them and then it gets a bit windy and some of them get knocked about. So they then have to repair the ones that they haven't even flown yet after they've been first assembled and reassemble them again. I mean, I mean, it's just a sort of, you know, and Chatterton, I mean, quite rightly, is, is, is saying this is ridiculous. You know, we really shouldn't be using them. Mm. And, and Hopkinson says, I'm going to send you home if you don't uh, don't do this. And so he sort of thinks, well, you know, what should I do? Uh, well, he doesn't want to lay his chaps down, does he? Because he doesn't want to leave them in the hands of he doesn't want to leave them in the hands of someone who who maybe just says yes to everything. Yeah, um, no I mean, it, anyway, I mean, the thing is, the thing is, no, you would never want th- that. You would never want that. I mean, the thing is, I mean, it, it, it does underline that generally, in general, actually, airborne operations are calamitous. Yeah, they generally. Are. And if you you know, you can argue that Operation Ladbrook is a success because because they you know, uh, uh, Ponte Grande is captured and held and the Italians are kept off it to the point where they can be relieved kind of you can argue that and you can argue that the that the chaos of people turning up all over Sicily in gliders confuses the enemy but that's not what you're trying to achieve no I mean so it's clutching at straws a little anyway but welcome but but, <laughs> but I do think I mean had it been anyone other than than Hopkinson and or or you know the other kind of sort of leading lights of the airborne forces you know if it had been left to chatterton for example you know he he would have i think someone should should could and should have suggested look this isn't going to work in gliders but we we are trained to do these kind of operations so the ground bit is not the issue we can do that so it's just obviously the whole point is for the gliders to try and get you somewhere stealthily but we can do this just as well by landing craft give us six landing craft and we'll do it Uh, and and no one has the guts or the foresight or the wherewithal to kind of suggest this yeah, but time. that might be, but that might easily be, let's say you get to the end, you do that, you get to the end of Husky and someone goes, well, we don't need these gliders, do we? No. We're, we're wasting, we're wasting money and airlift on these things. And yes. then that little, and that gets, so they get, it gets sacked off and you end up not bothering with air landing at all. And these, these people who've built their little empires and lobbied very, very hard end up with a lot of egg on their face. But do you, do you not think you could have done exactly the same on D-Day? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Why can't you land on Band Beach with a whole load of commandos, Take run, run in? I mean, it's not very far inland to Pegasus Bridge from the coast. It's a matter of about three or four miles. Yeah, in jeeps, even. Yep, land them straight on, straight in, yeah. boom. Yeah, well, because uh, because a lot of time and effort and money, and after all, Winston Churchill himself has asked for a glider landing and parachute landing force, and it, and... It may be that he goes, he, you know, goes across his desk that they've di- they've got rid of it, and you don't want that rocket from the top, do you? Maybe at the no, uh, although, maybe not. Uh, maybe although, yeah, maybe, although, maybe although answer, people at yeah. the although people at the air ministry have been blocking it as hard as they possibly can because they think it's a stupid idea. <laughs> I mean, they just it's just. I mean, even Operation Varsity, which is you know incredibly successful. I mean, but is it necessary? I don't know. Well, I don't know. I don't know. You tell me you've got an ab- allied airborne airborne army. What are you going to do with it? Anyway, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. <laughs> you see, we digressed before we said hello. Before we get formally started, um, uh, James and I will say grace in Latin shortly. Uh, a few bits of news. I know many of you enjoyed our bonus Sunday episode with Annabelle Venning as she described not only her family's extraordinary wartime story, but how she went about researching it. Um, we know from our mailbag that this is a subject many of you are interested in, so please do have a listen to that. Um, it was fascinating talking to Annabelle. Um, and, you know... There's a lot to be said for having seven siblings of that generation uh, in your, it, it, you know, 
your grandparent level, isn't there? Yeah. Because there were tons of stories. Yeah, amazing. Um, a, a big family bring, brings a big book, um, which uh, brings me to our key point. We need your family stories. What did your grandmother or grandfather get up to? It doesn't have to be extraordinary. They can't all have parachuted into Arnhem or swum from their glider to Sicily. <laughs> we, want to, <laughs> we want to hear about the quirky and interesting details that defined the global war, because that's, after all, what we're talking about. Two ways to send them to us, either by email, um, uh, which is no longer for the old we've decided that 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 running joke has run its course we have ways <laughs> podcast at gmail.com please make the subject of your email family stories and then we'll spot it straight away family stories um on the email or go to the patreon site and click on the tab family stories and add yours to the long thread there no more than 500 words please unless of course it's some sort of Irresistible, amazing, amazing ep- thing. Irresistible, amazing epic. And James and I will be reading a selection out each, for each Sunday morning. Also, we're continuing our Picture Paints a Thousand Words series this week. Each day at around 4pm, we will publish a short film on the Patreon site featuring James and I chewing the cut over a wartime picture that particularly interests us. That's and been fun, thought- hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It has. The thoughts it sparks in yep. our minds and the ways of looking at it. Um, uh, Right, then. Here we go. Your questions. But well, hold on a minute. That- I mean, how's your Tiger Tank coming along? The tiger's all right. The t- I got sidetracked into the winter you got the Bastogne. Bastogne scene, yeah. um, and I and I'm and I because the because the the Bastogne thing, I cut I cast the the base myself in a like takeaway tray. That was the, yep. an experiment. That was the first one using polyfiller and a bit of building builder sand. Oh, really? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah. Nice touch. I, I, it's always I good think, to be experimental. Well, that's it. But it it worked. I wasn't expecting it to work, and mm-hmm. it worked. So now I might. Uh, and so what I might do. Is throw that base away and make a better one. Now I know. Now I know how to do it. It looked pretty um, good to me. It did look good, but I. But it's got. The, there's a problem. Is that because of the crick? <laughs> Zesh fair, I, I reckon. Because of the crenellated edge on it, it's got a sort of crenellated <laughs> edge. It looks like a. It looks like a Vionetta. and a lot of people keep asking me <laughs> if it's if the diorama's a cake. <laughs> if only it were. You can imagine a Sherman <laughs> cake in Bastogne. <laughs> For my birthday next year, I want a Sherman cake. Right, okay, no, no. Let me just write that down. Um, okay, uh, um, yeah. So the tiger, the tigers, the tigers next. I want and I want to make a base for that. It's a, you know, it's in, it's a tiger in Tunisia. So oh, it is may, it? So it's yeah, I may have it. You know, with a barrel down, looking sorry for itself. Um, yeah, uh, but it's a rough anyway. grassland. Yes, some rough grassland, some the odd rock. Here I've been, there, out, I've been all around there. It's amazing. Yeah, well, because, you know, Northern Tunisia hasn't really changed. So you can go to sort of Sidi Nazir, the rail stop at Sidi Nazir, and it's just, it's there it all is. It's just exactly as it was. Um, Bits of shrapnel um, all over it? the place. Is it scrub and bushland and what does it look like? Because it's not desert, it, is it? No, 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 not at all. No, it sort of looks like southern um, Mediterranean kind of grassland. So it's sort of dry kind of sort of very very sort of pale yellowy green grass and very dry and kind of it, it looks mediterranean i mean it just looks it looks sort of like, like southern, southern italy, southern stretches italy, of or, southern southern italy Sicily right. or something like that so rocky and rocks yeah. and it's actually quite forested right in the very north very north on the sort of you know on the on the carthage coastline sort of near Bizerta or around there that's that's really that's quite um that's quite green. They have all these sort of cork forests, these sort of baby oak cork forests. But a bit further south, it's all kind of it's sort of hills and stuff, and it's um very red soil. So it's a very kind of rich, oxidey clay soil. It's amazing. But but Sidi Nazir, all those places, the Majorda Valley, they haven't really changed very well. They hadn't kind of fifteen years ago. Haven't really changed very much from from kind of you know nineteen forty three. So it's a, it's an incredibly evocative place to go and so was there any were there any lessons in the landscape there for um first army uh an eighth army you know for italy for the sicilian campaign the italian well, campaign do you think no not really i think it gives them i think actually it gives it does them a sort of in a funny sort of way it sort of does them a tactically a bit of a disservice because um although the landscape is very it's not really similar it it's similar to the kind of sort of flatter bits of southern italy um and to the flatter bits of uh, the sort of bits of of italy but it's not a, it's lots of hills and there are there is a mountain chain but it, it doesn't feel overall as mountainous as as sicily or 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 you know the central part of italy italy does um but it's empty that's that's the big difference i mean there are villages there are towns but they're just not on a scale to southern italy or sicily or anything like that so you haven't got to kind of sort of bulldoze your way through endless narrow streets and little 
towns and churches and and all that kind of stuff. I mean, all around Sidi Nazir, it just sort of goes on forever. You know, it's just like... Just that- I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like, you know, um, it looks more like the sort of the grasslands of Montana or North Dakota. That's what it looks like. It's sort of like the Battle of the Little Bighorn or something. And so does it Does it also, um, by the same token, have that similar thing to the war in the desert where there's not, there's not really very much civilian collateral damage right. to be done no because, uh, so it's armies fighting armies rather than armies fighting right. through po- through populations yeah i mean there are there, right. there are there are people yeah, obviously there, there are people not, there, yeah. not even remotely on a on a level to fighting in europe so so that whole that, that is just not a a factor it's just not it's not a in a way that the the, the civilian side of things and the and the collateral damage in europe just becomes so completely entwined in the com and into the into the conflict, yeah. The it doesn't in, North, yeah. in northern Tunisia. The whatever you're doing, you're creating refugees, displacing people, Wh- which which homes, has, has dwellings, right? Which has a, which which is a is terrible and tragic, but it also has a knock on effect to the fighting as well. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, there's lots of rubble gets in the way. Whereas if you haven't yeah. got any rubble, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, because that's I mean that is one of the interesting aspects about the uh, uh, because I mean uh, <laughs> um, and we 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 did this chat the other day with John Buckley that will be on later this month, I think. But one of the things we talked about is how, you know, um, uh, by the time they get to Normandy, everyone's been thinking about how how to beat the Germans. And of course, the fighting in the desert is the thing. Eighth Army's performance in the desert and the the way they go about it is the thing Montgomery wants to take with him to Normandy, isn't it? And he's wrong. And then there's stuff from from Italy and Sicily that they take with them from Italy and Sicily that's wrong. And and, and so quite clearly... That, 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 you know, whatever they learn in Tunisia is wrong as well. And that actually each time you arrive in a new sort of subsection of the theatre, it's different all over again, isn't it? And you can you can have the cleverest and most able tacticians and uh, uh, people on these problems. But in the end, each time it's different, each time it's new, isn't it? I suppose the German army in Tunisia as well is going to perform differently to the German army in Italy because its lines of supply are that much more complex Whereas a, a, there's a much shorter line of supply and a more conventional line of supply. It's all basically it's all land based in Italy within Italy, isn't it? Rather than, you know, that. so however you're fighting the Germans, however you're fighting the Germans and the way the Germans are performing in Tunisia is them right at the end of what they're possibly capable of. You know, aren't they? They're, they're right on the end of their on the end of their chain, aren't they? And, yeah. And, and it's what it's what really I mean, it, it's what, it's what, what does completely for does for them for their merchant shipping, because uh, German merchant shipping across the um, across the Mediterranean is largely um, Italian and coerced Greek, etc. Uh, from the Aegean. And what you have by that stage, because all the big ships have been sunk early on in the war, there's just there's no capacity for building any more. So your ships get smaller and smaller and smaller, and then less, and so your whole shipping process gets more less efficient. Um, and by the end of the Tunisian campaign, because of Hitler's insistence on on reinforcing Tunisia so much to to the extent of sending over an entire new army, effectively, um, you know, by by the end of that campaign, when it's all in the bag and all been sunk, there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing left. So the so the irony is for actually supplying Sicily becomes really, really difficult because they still need to supply it by ship, even though you've got this little link across the Straits of, of Messina. You know, that's the best still the best way. Um, and, of course, the Allies just sort of hammer it before the Sicilian invasion, which means that, again, their lines of supply are really, 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 really hampered um, from then on in. And it's not until they get back into into the fighting in, in Italy itself, mainland Italy, that, that things sort of resume to a certain level of efficiency because they're suddenly dependent on railway lines. But then they get hammered. Um, there's Mallory and Mallory Major, which is the big kind of operations in the spring to kind of smash all the bridges and railway lines and stuff, which is a kind of precursor to what they're doing in, um, in, in northwest Europe at the same time. And it's incredibly effective. But do you think this en- enters into some of the, um, you know, uh, uh, calculation that the Allies... Miscalculation, perhaps, that the Allies have of how fighting Italy is going to go, because quite clearly the defeat in Tunisia, the Germans, the Germans. I mean, interestingly, Hitler reinforces heavily, and then of course that creates a supply problem in itself, doesn't it? You can supply a smaller army more efficiently than a big one, can't you? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so he sort of he exacerbates his supply problem in Tunisia by reinforcing. Is it not that 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 defeat? 
of the of the Germans comes easily, really, doesn't it? In, in Tunisia, as they get well, yes, as they get closer to Germany, the Germans fight more efficiently, don't they? And and fight perhaps more stubbornly. And is that because the supplies getting easier and all that sort of things? I know they're hammering. I know they're hammering the railways in Italy. But there's an element at which, isn't there, that the things are getting simpler for the Germans the, the, uh, as as they and is that is that factored into the Allied calculation? No, or, and I, th- they... I think it's largely due to the terrain in Italy that makes it so difficult. It's so difficult. I mean, it is really interesting that in you know the battle plan for Operation Diadem, which is the um, you know the breakout of of Cassino and the assault on Rome, uh, which starts on I think the 11th of May 1944. So the it is assumed that it is going to be eighth army that's in the driving seat, and they've got they've got um, a fifth army on their left, going through the mountains, and they're doing a support role. And the idea is that they'll just go straight up uh, the Via Casalina, which is Highway One, straight to Rome. And basically, there's four roads going up north to south, you know, south to north to Rome, and they all eventually lead into Rome. So there's one on the Adriatic coast, there's one in the middle, which sort of goes straight through the mountains, and that's completely, you know, you can't do that, that's hopeless. Then there's one right on the coast, and again, it's just too, it's too narrow to the, to the, to the coast. Yeah. You know, Not and, enough room and there's for too many and flanking. Mountain, and, yeah, yeah and there's too many mountain overhangs, and it's just, it, again, that's impossible. So there's only one road, really, that the Allies can use as their main axis of advance, and that's the Via Casalina, and that goes down the Liri Valley. And what happens is the Germans, it doesn't pan out at all as they imagine that actually it is on the left flank, uh, it is Fifth Army, the, the French Expeditionary Corps and, and US Two Corps that do the Great Surge. And that pushes the, the German Tenth Army much further eastwards so that not a single man retreats down the Via Casalina at all. But the 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 route of the of the mountains is also going sort of very roughly, kind of sort of well, it's going sort of north west to southeast um, because it's at an angle. But it, on the diagonal, sort of, yeah, 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 it's on the diagonal. But it's sort of basically going sort of you know uh, um, in line with the with the Italian peninsula. So the problem for the Allies is, or, or, or the the ease for the Germans is that all you've got to do is put out a kind of sort of a, a kind of rear guard of machine guns and mortars and a couple of guns and blow up a few, you know lay the lay the narrow road with mines and you've held up an, an entire division for, for 48 hours blow some bridges or rest of it. and there is there is just no way you can get through that if you're the allies and the problem the allies has is in italy is that they're materially incredibly strong you know they've got lots of motor motor transport they've got lots of aircraft all the rest of it in the winter in italy the aircraft don't really work because they can't see anything because it's low cloud and it's miserable weather and you can't really bring your your motor transport your huge material strength to bear either because you can't get it up the mountains because the roads aren't tarmacked and you know and, and they're muddy and washed away and blown up by the germans and all the rest of it so then it becomes a question of infantry and um, pack mules and all the rest of it, which is frankly pretty medieval and doesn't play to the Allied strengths. Yeah. yeah. So it's well, it not becomes... until until the summer that you can surge forward. But the Germans then very cleverly have these series of delaying actions up through through Italy until they get to the Gothic line, which is a series of it's, it's like green one and green two. So there's two main belts of defences across the Apennines, which at that point stretches from the west coast to the to the east coast and it's just incredibly difficult for the allies to get through that you know it is you know it's 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 and it doesn't require a huge amount of men and resources to defend that uh, uh, whereas in northern tunisia where the ground is much more open and where there's less towns and less winding little roads and all the rest of it it's much harder to defend the whole in a way that it is a very narrow peninsula in Italy with lots of mountains to help you. And I think that's the biggest difference rather than the, the supply lines. Rather than the question of supply. Yeah, okay. but that's the problem with the Diadem battle, is that wherever the Germans are able, wherever there's roads, the Germans are able to defend it quite easily. And it's actually the foot-swift, mountain-trained North African colonial troops of the French who do all the damage because that's what they're used to doing. But by early nineteen, by the spring of nineteen forty-four, 
British armies are trained to operate with huge amounts of motor vehicles and transport, you know, well, it becomes down a, road. It becomes a, a, a sapper's war and a mountain soldier's war, basically, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's it's interesting because obviously you know we, we you know when we, I thought John Buckley was really fascinating. I don't want to sort of you know uh, spoil it or anything, but it is it is really interesting how the armor and the infantry in those early stages in Norman, Normandy, you know, two weeks in, you can see that the Sherwood Rangers have just absolutely had it up to here with with, with the infantry. And and I've just I've literally just before we we sat down to this, I was looking at the the war diary written by Terry Leinster, uh, who's the adjutant. On the 20th of June, and it goes, CO and squadron leaders attended another conference at 147 Brigade HQ. Seemingly, all infantry brigadiers appear the same. They all appear to be middle-aged, rather grim, considerably low in their thoughts, and without any sense of (laughs) humour. And you're thinking, well, I don't really blame them, because, you know, 49th Division, 147th Brigade has just gone in with the 6th Duke of Wellington's Regiment and the 7th Duke of Wellington's Regiment on their first action. The 6th Duke of Wellington's um, have had two years um, on Iceland. You know, they haven't fired a, fired a single shot. Then they've gone straight into Normandy, gone straight into the line. And in two days of fighting, they've lost 250 men. Yeah, you might not have a sense of humour after that too. <laughs> That's my point. <laughs> Okay, we have to take a very short break. We'll see you in a moment. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people (laughs) will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Um, right, James, we have stuff we have to get through now because what we did there is we digressed. Um, we didn't, uh, did we? Ro- royally for half an hour. Okay. Yeah, that was um, good though, wasn't it? Tunisia, it was very, uh, gliders, uh, yeah, all Normandy. over. Yeah, absolutely. Always got to get yeah. Normandy in somewhere. How many airborne operations did Alex cancel um, in, the, in the Italian campaign? Gosh, How many did know. he plan and cancel? I don't know. That's a very good line. It's something good... like 16, maybe 18. Yeah. Because 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 he 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 I think he didn't get it either. He thought oh, that's the point. No, well after after the uh, Primazzoli Bridge, you know he um uh, that's uh, is that Fustian? Yeah, yeah after Fustian, Fustian, Fustian yeah. he 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 just goes okay. I really think we all need to take a rain check on airborne operations for a bit. <laughs> let's just because yeah. he had it. Let's let's just digest what we've learned. Yeah. And then let's hold fire on anything else until after. Although, actually, obviously, you know, airborne operations did happen in southern Italy, didn't they? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yes. Uh, Well, yes. Yeah. I mean, first. uh, uh, Yes. Well, yeah. 
the parachute brigade are delivered by sea, aren't they, at Salerno? And yeah, and look how successful it was. At, at, yeah, exactly. I rest my case. At, 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 well, and then, Hop- <laughs> and then Hopkinson's killed going forward in all that. Yeah. Well, because I mean, that's the other interesting thing about Hopkinson. It's because he's killed, we don't have his side of the story. What we don't have is a memoir by him going, I knew it was a bloody great idea, like, like Chatterton's <laughs> book. Anyway, um, we, we, should, we, should, uh, we should do the things I was going to do right at the start. Um, uh, we were gonna, well, a couple of questions. But before that, I want to start with this little message we got from our regular listener, Darren Little. Oh, Hi, we chat. have ways. Yeah, absolutely. I've always, always enjoyed the podcast, especially live Thursday. It's keeping me sane and engaged with the rest of the independent company, Afflicted. This Friday is the anniversary of the Battle of Hill 170, Kangor, Burma, that lasted to the 31st of January 1945. Any chance there could be a mention of this on the podcast, particularly about 3rd Commando Brigade? My grandfather, Thomas Hall, from Cumbran, South Wales, was in number one army commando with them defending the hill, codenamed Brighton, against overwhelming Japanese forces that resorted to many underhand tactics to gain the ground. It was a vital and a very important battle in the Arakan campaign of 1945. If it had failed, the IJA would cut the Allied forces in two and get to the coastline to control it. James did promise on a previous podcast with Robert Lyman that he would mention it more and include it in a book when he does a follow-up to Burma 44. I think this story should be made into a film. Fingers crossed it gets some exposure. It seems it's a forgotten battle within forgotten army in a forgotten theatre of war, apart from Imphal and Kohima. Thanks very much. Regards, Darren Little. James. Yeah, well, he's got a good point. He has been he has been banging this drum a, a, a little while, and he's quite right, and we did promise it. And, um, that, I mean, the interesting thing about the Arakan campaign is... is to start off with, you know, when, when the narrative of the, of, of the war in Burma is all about the Arakan. Yeah. So so that is the focus of the attack in, in end well, of yes, 1942, I mean, beginning of 1943. You say the Arakan campaign of 1945. Well, and the, there was one the year before. <laughs> there was one the year before. So, yeah. so, so when, when, the, when the British are trying to sort of, you know, when it's the Eastern Army, as it then was, um, in the end of 1940, so they've retreated into Burma in May 1942. Then, then there's been the monsoon, so nothing's happened till you know, from May to November, basically. Um, the Japanese haven't pressed it any further. Uh, British made no great effort to kind of sort of counterattack. Then from November onwards, 1942, they do attack. And it's, it is the Arakan in which is, is the area where they, they make their main thrust because that's the most obvious one because it's closer to the coast, it's closest to India, it's closer to Bengal, blah, blah, blah. It makes, it makes sense. Uh, and they hit a brick wall. Uh, and that's because they use the wrong tactics, wrong approach. Japanese have dug in in their kind of sort of, you know, uh, um, honeycomb kind of sort of uh, bunkers and tunnels into the hills and, and they get absolutely nowhere. Um, and then the training, comes, training isn't up to scratch. Training's not up to scratch. And, and, morale, yeah, and the morale's all over the place and right. and uh, uh, they haven't really, they haven't figured out the jungle yet and all that stuff. And all that stuff. And, and then you have the summer of 1943 and that's when um, Noel Irwin, who's the commander of the Eastern Army, gets sacked um, uh, um, Bill Slim is put in his place in an acting CO role, and then in October he is um, uh, October the twenty second, as it happens. Uh, Mount Batten gets made. Um, he he arrives at Barrackpore, has his chat with Slim, and goes, "I want you to be my man." And in November, that's ratified. Um, it becomes Fourteenth Army at Slim's suggestion, rather than Eastern Army. Um, they have the big revamp. Then comes the um, Battle of the Admin Box in February 1944, which is the first big test of the kind of new training, new new approach to battle, supply drops, hold hold and don't ever retreat, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then followed swiftly on its heels is is from March until July is the Battle of Imphal, uh, which includes Kahima as well. So that's that's you know 800 miles away on on the kind of sort of north. East Burma Front. Um, but operations in, in the Arakan continue. Uh, it's just rather like the war in Italy. Uh, once Rome gets taken on the 4th of June, everything's dominated by Normandy and D-Day two days later. It's sort of rather the same in Burma. So that what happens is Arakan has been the focus up until kind of, you know, beginning of March 1944. Then suddenly it's, it's superseded by what's happening at Imphal and Kahima and all the rest of it. And by subsequently what then happens in in Burma, crossing the Irrawaddy, going back down to Mandalay, McTilo and all the rest of it. Um, but it doesn't mean that there's any let-up in the fighting in, in the Arakan. And Darren's point is about what happens actually in January 1945, when there is, again, some incredibly ferocious fighting. And all I can say is, Darren, I promise we will go to this. But but I could talk about it in broad brushes, but it's not until I've kind of done a book 
uh, and really studied this in, in great detail that I can really add anything to what you've already said. Um, and that's what I need to do. Um, and there is a plan absolutely to uh, follow up on Burma 44 and do the Battle of Imphal and Kahima um, and then do a third one in a sort of loose trilogy, which would be about the, the victory in Burma and the kind of you know Battle of Mandalay, which would include what happens in... The Interesting that it's commandos. That are, there's a commando brigade um, in that part of the world. I mean, have they, have they been... Because you've commandos are extremely busy in Northwest Europe, especially. I mean, you know, Walcheren is a big commando operation, isn't it? With Army Commando and Royal Marine Commando. Yeah. Um, I didn't realise that um, there were Army Commandos in 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 Burma. Are well, they, actually, are they part of the Indian Army? I mean, what what? How does that all piece together? Um. Yeah. Well, yes, they're moved. They're moved across, and they then become part of part of the Indian Army. I mean, in a way, kind of. Burma is suited to commando operations as as well as any place because it's got this incredibly long coastline. Um, and the great fear for the Japanese, just as it is for the great fear of the German army in Italy, is being outflanked because that makes the most sense. It's just that it's there's never enough shipping to do that. So they tend to be kind of quite small operations. But there's a series of, of amphibious operations in Burma where they're kind of outflanking positions, getting behind. Because, you know, if you've got Japanese squirreled into some some hill only kind of sort of five miles from the coast and you just can't get through it, then why don't you just go behind it? Um, the problem always is the shortage of shipping, the shortage of landing craft. There's such a premium on it because, of course, you know, there's huge other operations going on all the time. There's operations still in Italy, amphibious operations right up until the end of the war. Uh, um, there's other amphibious operations, of course, there's, you know, what's going on in the Pacific War, which is just one gigantic amphibious operation. So... That's why there's such demand for it. And, um, you know, Burma is seen as comparatively low priority, particularly so from from the Americans. So that is why the opportunity never really kind of presents itself in anything other than just sort of small, little, small-scale stuff. But, of course, commandos are, are uniquely suited for exactly that kind of but they're, they're, operation. They are they are um, gearing up for um, retaking Singapore amphibiously and all that sort of stuff. There yeah. is a, there, you know, the, the, the long-term plan is for, is for tons of this stuff this stuff once Europe's out of the way. I mean, the fact the fact is the Americans are able to do both at once is the is the thing that the British can't do. Is that what what the British simply can't do is fight both theatres at once, which is after all why the fall of Singapore is such a such a calamity geopolitically, isn't it? Is yeah, is absolutely. Is the is the is the moment of imperial crisis yeah. where the British Empire is is you know revealed to be wearing no clothes at all. Uh, in fact. Um, I mean, right. I do find it amazing, though, that there are these, you know, of course, all all around the Second World War and all around this extraordinary global conflict. There are, of course, on any given day, moments where people are giving their lives for something that in that own that, that little bubble, that little part of the world seems so important that lives do need to be given. The tragedy for that is, is that Often that wasn't the case. Sometimes it is the case, but it's just been forgotten. And there is no fairness at all with the way in which we remember and commemorate what happened in the war. You know, it, it all tends to focus around the mega events and the events that have been dominated by Hollywood or or ones that are geographically close to where, where we are. So, you know, here we are in England. You know, what could be easier than going to Dunkirk or Normandy or whatever? flipping impossible to go to the Arakan. You actually can't go to the Arakan, right? I mean, you couldn't even if there wasn't COVID, you couldn't go to the Arakan. It's now a, a Rakhine state. You know, this is where all the uh, Rohingyas are getting um, persecuted or the, the ethnic cleansing of the Muslims. Burmese Muslims is going on and all the rest of it. You just you just can't get there. So consequently, you know, these things get, get, um, get forgotten, which is why, you know, if you have a personal interest in this and a, and a, um, and a connection to it, such as Darren Little does... It's worth you banging your drum because otherwise it's going to be even more forgotten. So I'm very grateful to Baron for um, for for bringing it back to our attention and and absolutely when it comes to me finally getting around to doing this this last phase of the war in Burma, I will absolutely cover it with bells on. Yeah, brilliant, excellent, superb. Oh, we hope you're satisfied with that, Darren. Now, okay, uh, Giles says, great podcast, Alan James. Recently discovered this masterpiece of Second World War chat and loving it. English pleasantries <laughs> over. I want to talk about the Cyprus Regiment. I've been reading how 500 of them were stationed at the Maginot Line in 1940, performing the vital role of mule drivers. Apparently, they were all successfully managed to make it back to Dunkirk, where they were evacuated. 
Following your discussion on the hardest regiment in the Second World War a couple of podcasts ago, I'm only on number 21, so probably a long while ago now for you guys. I wonder where the Cyprus Regiment stands in the top trumps of hardness. I ask, <laughs> I only ask because I also read that they were unarmed, which must have made for a very nervy track trip back across France to Dunkirk. Also, why donkeys down on the tunnels of the Maginot Line? Thank you, Giles. Well, donkeys... You know, now, I mean, interestingly, the American army in Afghanistan was was working on a thing, wasn't it? Like a sort of robot to carry its ammunition, like an all-terrain walking robot thing um, in recent in recent decades. Because after all, you know, lugging lugging all their crap is a, an arduous task and it means the, the men don't have to carry it all and are less worn out. And so they, there's a they were developing a robot, whereas whereas you could just use a donkey. You could just use mules, which is what armies have done since the dawn of time. And, and we talked about this the other day on a picture paints a thousand word. After all, when your lorry breaks down, you can't eat it. Um, <laughs> um, so, I mean, don't, you know, you'd have mules, you'd have mules in the Maginot line to, to move stuff because there's stuff too heavy to carry or stuff that's inconvenient to carry. It, it, I think it's, it's, it's pretty obvious that, that, you know, and I suppose the fumes off a mule down a tunnel aren't as egregious as the fumes off a tractor that are you going to you are you going to suffer suffocate from mule dung in a way that you aren't from a <laughs> from the diesel fumes of a tractor or something i think oh, it yeah. makes perfect makes perfect sense to me that there would be mules down the maginot line um i don't I know, know. I'd, about... I'd be surprised if they went from dunkirk though because if they're in the maginot line they'd have they'd have come out at kind of the Havre or cherbourg or somewhere that, and, and the reason they're able to get back across France is because the Germans haven't got there yet. You know, we're still on case yellow at Dunkirk, not case red. But, you know, happy to be corrected on that one. Um, but, I mean, but yeah, that, it, they do sound quite tough. It does, indica- it does indicate, though, that, again, it's a, it's this global um, war thing, isn't it? There are people from Cyprus um, yeah, in, absolutely. In, uh, uh, working as subterranean mule drivers in France. Have uh, you ever been um, to the Maginot Line? Uh, yeah, I've been to a bit of it, yeah. Yeah. You haven't, you, you haven't been down in the tunnels and been but, on the electric extremely train? Long, an extremely long time ago. So, no, I, no, I've not been in the tunnels on the, oh, on the electric ama- train. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, it is. they are quite extraordinary. Are they quite extraordinary in a way that would convince you it was a really good idea? If you're a politician, you'd convince you it was a really good idea and your money was being well spent. Because that's the crux. That is the crux of the matter, isn't it? And also, I mean... But no one gets but, through the Maginot line, do they? No, no one gets through the Maginot line. I mean, it's, 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 the whole point of it is, is not... It's not. I mean, they know they can't protect the whole of France, but it's to kind of say, okay, we don't have to worry about that bit. You know, it's it's like so we can concentrate all our men in the north, so that we don't have to worry about that bit because no one's going to get which that. is which is why them screwing up the bit that they did have to worry about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just so is even more egregious. Yeah, yeah, I agree it? with that. Yeah. I do agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. You have one bit that's static, so you can perform a war of manoeuvre with the rest of it. Yeah. Is, is and that's what that and then they mess that then they mess that bit up. So. It's not the Maginot line, really, that's the problem, is it? It's, every, it's everything else. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, but honestly, the technology in it is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, these turrets that, that are, you know, they're like a sort of huge periscope. They, you know, you can sit in them and they sort of go... And they sort of emerge from the hill like a sort of So is it sort of like a, bond, is it like a Bond villain lair? That is exactly what it's like. That's a brilliant analogy. Yeah, that is exactly what it's like. And you go on a little electric train. And you sort of, you know, off you beetle. And you go for freaking miles. I mean, you, you sat on the thing and you think for the like first five minutes, you think, oh, this is fun, isn't it? God, this is great. And about sort of 10 minutes later, you're going, well, oh, get a bit chilly. And then about, <laughs> so after 15 minutes, you're starting to look at your watch and go, oh, will this thing ever get to the other end? <laughs> Jesus, you know. <laughs> and eventually you do get to the other end, you get off and you sort of climb up some steps and, you know, sort of, and then you're in this sort of room, which is a sort of control room for a gun, and you get into this pod, and you know, up it, up it raises, rises uh, out of this sort of mound, this sort of concrete, you know, there's a sort of grass dome, and, and this gun appears. It's absolutely unreal. So it's sort of a, a Bond villain lair and the Death Star com- sort of combined. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is. <laughs> um, and, not, and, after and, all the death, and it never worked out for them either, did it? No, exactly. That's exactly where I was going next. <laughs> I mean, in many ways, the, the raid on the Death Star is like Eben Mal, isn't it? It's like the gliders on Eben Mal. Right. Um, kind of. Uh, 
Kevin Blokey. We'll do one more question. Kevin Blokey says, Hi, Alan James. Love the pod so much. In fact, I've now become a member of the independent company, still waiting for my badly fitting uniform. Oh, oh none, of them, none of them fit. Can I ask, watching an episode of The World at War, it showed a German aircrew killed after crashing in Scotland, receiving a funeral with full military honours. This was, it has to be said, during the phony war. Did such events take place throughout the war? And was it reciprocated on the other side? Cheers, lads. That's a good question. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, it just depends. I mean, you know, when you haven't got, when you're in an area where there's not an awful lot of death, you can afford to take a little bit of time out and give someone full military honours, particularly early on the war where there's this still sort of sort of weird notions of chivalry. Obviously, by the time you're sort of, you know, later on in the war, all and you're a terror, and you're a te- yeah, and you're a terror flieger. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you can forget <laughs> things it. Little, things are a little different, aren't they? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it is interesting. It is interesting, isn't it? That 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 you would. You would do, you know, uh, a rifle volley and reva- uh, uh, and last post and all that for the for the other side, but I suppose you're doing it so they do it. F- part of it, it's again, it's this re- reciprocity. You're doing it so they do it for you, because after all, yeah. in the end, how you treat each other's captured, wounded, and dead is really important because you you want it for your guys in return, don't you? Yeah. Because um, that's how things get out of control very very quickly. You know the the, the when, when, I mean, it's it's it it turns into the Canadians having no time for the SS in Normandy because because if you murder each other's uh, prisoners, or if you murder the other side's prisoners, they, word's going to get around pretty quickly, and they're going to start murdering you when you're exactly. captured. Yeah. Mm, interesting. That's very good. Well, that's it for today. But fear not, we're back on Thursday in conversation with Sarah Kovner about the war in the Far East and the treatment of prisoners of war in that theatre, which follows on. Quite beautifully from what we were just saying, <laughs> reciprocity. Um, and that story is more complex than you might imagine, ladies and gentlemen. Um, uh, yet again, the odd war movie maybe have intervened between uh, what really happened uh, and, you know, because Bridge Over the River Choir, an incredibly influential film, I think. Uh, but there's more to it than that, I think, is yes, the, the is. best way of putting it. Then on Sunday, we'll be reading three or four of your family story, stories. That'll be on the regular pod feed. Every day this week on the Independent Company site, we've got a new video of us chewing the cud and analysing a photograph. And, of course, we'll be live on Thursday night for the usual frolics. 750 of you last week enjoyed an hour with John Orloff, writer of Banner Brothers and new Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks extravagance at Masters. He was good, though, wasn't he? He, he was, was terrific. He's great. Tom. He's a, so I told yeah. a Tom. Yeah, That's yeah, Hanks, Hanks won't like that. So um, we hope to see you all soon. Thanks for joining us. Cheerio. Bye for now. Cheerio. Cheerio.